Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, October the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and with me in studio are political editor Pat Leahy. In a little while, we'll be joined by Harry McGee to discuss the runners and riders in the so far not particularly exciting presidential race. But first, Brexit is on the agenda yet again this week. The Conservative Party conference is taking place right now in Birmingham, and the next fortnight or so really is crunch time for the Brexit negotiations. I'm joined on the line by Lisa O'Carroll. Carol, who's a senior reporter at The Guardian and also Brexit correspondent for that newspaper. Lisa, thanks very much for joining us from Birmingham. I mean, you're there with your Guardian uh, Brexit hat on and it's being portrayed, I think, very much as a, as, as a Brexit conference. Although there are other questions going on, not least uh, threats to the leadership of Theresa May. But you're writing in uh, yesterday's Guardian about this particular noises uh, of dismay, despair, perhaps just pain from the DUP uh, who perhaps see that the, that the backstop is looming again as, uh, as, as a threat to the union. Absolutely. So they held a fringe event which was on at the same time as Boris Johnson's speech and Boris, as you may know, had queues out the door for three hours uh, getting into the hall. Um, and the DUP surprisingly uh, drew a really quite big crowd and we had Karen Bradley, the Northern Ireland Secretary. We had the Israeli ambassador name-checked. We had the Tory chief whip, Julian Smith, and a few other uh, like senior figures in the Tory party. So that was quite interesting. So Arlene, who I interviewed and also she gave, uh, gave some words, um, was the usual hard line on the backstop. But Nigel Dodds was really absolutely hard line and uh, confirmed that they would go as far as not vote um, if Theresa May does come back with a, with a deal that has any checks whatsoever, he said. They will go through the deal line by line and if it doesn't satisfy them in terms of their red line, they, will, they are prepared to vote against Theresa May. And the point they were also making was that it wasn't so much that they wanted to collapse the Tory party because, as we know, they don't, will never want to do that. This, they haven't um, had so much power ever, and I don't think they will ever, ever again have the power that they have now. So they won't be voting like turkeys for Christmas, but they will, as Arlene has already indicated, they will support a Tory party under a different leader. But it is it is all part of, um, you know, the battle game that, that uh, we will enter as soon as Theresa May gets up on her feet today. Um, it's game on, and it's two two weeks and a few days of of serious, serious brinkmanship. Now, as, as we know, the Tory party is extremely divided, but how does it play with the party when somebody from another party, albeit one that's currently supporting the Tory government and confidence and supply agreement, uh, makes so clear that, that the current leader is not particularly important to them. I mean, there's some quite snide comments, I think, by Nigel Dodds is that, that, he's seen, that, that the DUP have seen off bigger threats than, uh, than Theresa mm. May in the past. And then there were warm words about Boris Johnson from, from Arlene Foster, sort of interfering in somebody else's patch, isn't it? 
Well, it is, and you could also uh, ask the question is, why are the DUP here holding an official event at a Tory party conference? This is not a DUP conference, but it does show you um, the power that they have. And, you know, Theresa May, you could say, made made a, a, a very big mistake after the general election when she found that her, the majority that she had was squandered and we, went straight to the DUP and entered into a confidence and supply agreement. I mean, she's been changed to them since June last year when she didn't necessarily need to be. And as somebody said here, you know, why, why give them a free lunch? She gave them a free lunch. She didn't have to. She could have carried on in a uh, no-majority government. And, you know, if it came to a point where there was something that the DUP disagreed with and um, they were, weren't going to vote against her, she could have then reached out and done a deal and given them some concessions. But we should see. I suppose then, against all that, Pat, um, the the temperature seems to be rising quite fast over the last 24, 48 hours. For the first time, um, we heard Arlene Foster saying that, you know, that the Belfast Agreement um, was, you know, could be renegotiated or we could be looking at it again, that other things, which we hadn't heard previously. We've had some pretty um, curt responses to that from from the Taoiseach in the Dáil last night. Um, Generally, you know, things are pretty spiky at the moment. Yeah, I think one of the consequences, it's not the only, uh, it's not the only reason that DUP-Dublin relations and indeed London-Dublin relations uh, have deteriorated uh, due to to Brexit, but it's it's very obvious that they're at a nadir that I think we haven't seen since before, certainly before the Good Friday Agreement, both between the governments uh, and, and and between the Irish government and the DUP. So that's what gives you Leo Varadkar responding in such a spiky fashion, as you term it, in the doll yesterday to Arlene Foster's comments about the Good Friday Agreement. I think the temperature is going up, as you say, for two reasons. One is passing, the other is not. One is the the Tory party conference. I was advising people in the Digest, people who were following Brexit closely. In yesterday morning's political Digest, you know, if they wanted to keep their blood pressure down, not to keep, not to watch the Tory party conference. And in fact, in in both in Dublin and uh, I think in Brussels, there is a sense that things will be said and uh, and and positions will be taken and rhetoric will be engaged in uh, in Birmingham that won't necessarily have a bearing on how the negotiations go uh, next week. But the second reason is is the one that is real and not passing, and that is that the deadline is looming in these negotiations. Next week is crucial. The following week is the summit and it will have to be clear by the end of next week, I think it will have to be clear to Michel Barnier that there is a possible breakthrough, a possible deal, or he can't go to EU leaders the following week on October the 18th, I think it is, and say we need to have a summit to clear this next uh, next month. He won't do that unless there is an indication that the two sides can reach agreement next uh, next week. And that's what this British movement is about, the movement signalled by, uh, by Theresa May on the backstop and uh, on, on the future relationship. That's what this is about. And I think the reaction from the DUP is so fu- furious because they can see that and they, they understand that this is, uh, uh, you know, that, that 
that we are reaching this is crunch time. Point. This is crunch time. This is the decisive decisions are being made now. But you also, you know, they made they made several. Uh, Arlene and Nigel made um, several references um, to the December debacle by saying, you know, we've been here before. This, this was when um, Theresa May actually agreed uh, an, an initial backstop situation and then was forced back to the table by uh, yes. by the DUP, which was very humiliating for her. Yes, because the DUP hadn't been involved in negotiations because they're not a party in the government and uh, the negotiations between Brussels and the UK. So the, one of the things that they were demanding when they met Theresa May yesterday was to see the text of this backstop. They're not going to get that text. And they know that the text is being held very close to um, Theresa May and Ollie Robbins' chest for good political reasons. And that's another question. When are we going to see the British proposal? We've been told it's coming very soon this week, but that's something we've heard time and time again, we've, you know, since last March. It, this really is a, a game of brinkmanship, I think. But there are also positive noises here. While Brexit may look like it's the predominant topic here, there's a general sense in Birmingham from Tory party delegates and sessions outside in the fringe that I've been going to is that people are really, really fed up with Brexit. They just want things to be over and to get on Imagine with Imagine how life. we feel. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the very interesting thing here is they're talking about, look at Labour. This is not what they would have been saying last year. Even Nigel Dodds yesterday said, look at Labour, it's full of energy, fizzing with ideas. You have people talking about the Tory party shifting to the left trying to get some social policies which will counter uh, Jeremy Corbyn's plans to nationalise rail, to offer better deals for workers, uh, by putting them on the board, giving them shares, this kind of stuff. And that's absent here in the Tory party. And the Tory party think this is this is really damaging for them in terms of the next general election, whenever that will be. So, you know, I mean, the, the, that may be so. It, it was very interesting to follow that and to see the kind of, the, I suppose, the in, in Boris Johnson's speech yesterday, the attempts to signal a kind of a return to one nation Toryism and, 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 and those kind of issues too. And indeed, to see the kind of first shots of a potential leadership contest, you know, happening in, in, in various speeches also. But the reality is, you know, this is crunch time for, for, for Brexit, Lisa. And what happens over the next while is, is going to really determine the fate of Theresa May and, and Theresa May's government, isn't it? Mm, it is. I was speaking to there's a German reporter here this morning, who uh, is based out of London, and she was telling me that she there's a German MP here who's one of the rapporteurs for the the Brexit um, kind of team leader in Germany, and he was saying to her that he's um, they're quite positive and and they think that there, a deal can be done, and I think there are a lot of people on the fringes here who think there's a lot of there's a lot of not hot air, but there's a lot of disrespect, um, offensive language, scaremongering. Whereas behind the scenes, I think there's a sense of pragmatism that, that you know, OD will be done. But isn't this the fear that the DUP have, is that at the end of the day, pragmatism will rule and mm. that what happened last year uh, mm. in the run-up to the December summit, when, uh, you know, we had a similar deadline where agreement had to be, uh, had to be reached and the British conceded on every major point. They conceded on Ireland, they conceded on citizens' rights, they conceded on the money. And uh, this is the fear again, I think, in the DUP. And, and it's almost, you know, there's kind of almost a cultural aspect to it within, uh, you know, within Northern Unionism that the, their, their darkest fear is not so much, you know, Dublin's green expansionism or, or even the infernal devices of popery, it's betrayal by London. And they see that, they smell it. And that, I think, accounts for 
the furious reaction yesterday. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. However, if you look at Theresa May, her longevity, you know, she, she's, she's not going to survive till, you know, the next general election. There's going to be a new leader, I imagine, going into the next general election, whenever that will be. If she comes back with a Brexit deal, she may last beyond um, March. There has been talk that the people who are after her premiership will um, keep their powder dry until March and then they will re-campaign, open, open the whole thing and say, now we'll, get to the, now we'll get you the leave that you really voted for. However, if you are May and you're thinking that this is the game, is, it is a short-term game, you'll be thinking, can you face down the DUP and live with, um, without those 10 votes? You probably can. And what are the practicalities at Westminster of that, Lisa? Were, were they to make that decision? Well, I mean, you would have to have... They've got 10 votes and Labour have obviously said they're going to vote, vote against um, checkers unless it satisfies their six points, that, the six points that nobody can remember, but that they've said quite clearly they're not going to vote for checkers. But so you'd also need those Tory rebels, the Nicky Morgans, the Dominic Greaves, and as you know, we've got four or five Labour rebels. So, I mean, the numbers look good for me, I think, because when uh, push comes to shove, I can't see the Nicky Morgans, the Anna Soubrys voting for an election. What a disaster that would be for the DUP. Is, 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 is that, I wonder, Lisa, is that part of May's calculation on this, that the DUP have simply nowhere to go? What are they going to do? Vote against her and, you know, and enable a Jeremy Corbyn government? If, if you thought that was her calculation, she should have done that last December. I don't know. She keeps her cards very close to her chest. Anybody who I speak to who has speak to, to members of the cabinet say, for example, her update in Salzburg came at the very last five minutes in her long cabinet meeting last week. She read from a script. There was no uh, extemporising. And I was interested also to see her on TV last night talking very, very passionately about Northern Ireland um, and criticising Boris uh, for being so casual and cavalier and saying, you know, these are, these are our people. These are people in the United Kingdom. We have to got to protect them. And I do believe that she, uh, she is sincere and genuine when she thinks that, uh, you know, when she, when, when she continually pledges not to have a border down the Irish Sea and to protect the Union. She's, I mean, she's backed herself into hell of a corner and it's going to be very difficult to see how she can climb down. Numbers are, are, are not on, on the border. So, I don't know where the solution is on this. Well, it's certainly a it's certainly a page turner, and we'll be following it with great interest both this afternoon and over the next few weeks. Lisa, thanks very much for joining us today. Hey, McGee, you're still on the presidential trail. It looks pretty dismal to me. Maybe it's more fun than I was thinking. It's not really, <laughs> not so far. But the trail has only led to various uh, locations around Dublin so far. We haven't hit the road, so we haven't had yet uh, a chance really to see how the presidential hopefuls will interact with the PPI, the plain people of Ireland. So what's been happening really... Do you say the plain people of Ireland aren't in Dublin? Yes, yes, absolutely. Even though I think a few of them, a few of us have infiltrated... Um, under deep cover. Under deep cover, yes. So most of them have been launching their campaigns in the past week and have been uh, not really hitting the road. I think Leonie Reader might be down in Connemara this weekend. I think Gavin Duffy is going to uh, Limerick tomorrow. But I think the, the kind of the, the tour buses and the campaigns proper will really start next week. Could just first well of all, debate. maybe just give me an overall sense of what, 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 is, at, what is at stake here. Um, it seems to me that it's very little. Well, just the... I mean, the presidency. Would become yeah. the president of Ireland for the next seven years. Well, what is at stake in terms of what, 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 what points have been made so far? 
what points of difference, what major issues have arisen? I, you know. Well, I think there, there always the the presidential campaign tends to um, um, manifest itself in two different ways. You have the candidates setting out their stall as to what they hope to do with the presidency over the next seven years. That is always limited because the powers of the president are limited. So a lot of them focus on the kind of symbolic power or the soft power or kind of pushing the envelope as far as the limited powers of the president's office uh, are concerned and the constraints uh, that uh, go along with that. And then the second element of the campaign is always looking at the the, the, the wherewithal of each uh, of the candidates to see if they have a clean record, uh, that there's no uh, skeletons lurking in the cupboard, either in their personal business uh, or public lives, uh, to see how they stand up to scrutiny uh, when asked tough questions about the, the uh, about how they've handled uh, various situations. And it's an interrogation in of their character. That's one of the things yeah. that makes it so bruising. If you look at the last two presidential elections, they were entirely bruising. And that's in that's that that's related. That 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 campaign process is directly related to the lack of power of the presidency. I mean, there's no political power. There's no hard political power in the presidency. That's one of the reasons why Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael aren't interested in and in in it anymore because they're interested in political power. So. So because there's no power in it, we can't really discuss with them the, camp- the normal campaign process in an election where you interrogate how people would use the power they would have if they are to be elected is, is, is largely moot. So you get all this guff about using... President for all the people, exactly, a particular yeah, interest yeah, in yeah, some yeah. particular area. It's an exercise in competitive guff, but the actual yeah. hard bit of the campaign is the interrogation of the characters of the people who would seek to be president. And... You know, that is... Well, 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 let's talk about one thing. Let's First of all, let's hear a clip from, uh, from Joan Freeman because she raises an interesting point about the field. What's happening is we're turning into Trump's America. We are... The people who are going up for this presidential election either have a lot of money or they're aligned to a party. Mm-hmm. I live in a semi-D. I have a mortgage, I, a big mortgage. But, you know, today there were buses... Coming up to to RTE, I came up in a small car. I'm not doing the poor mouth, by mm-hmm. the way. I'm just telling you the reality. So the point made by Joan Freeman there, I think Gavin Duffy reacted uh, quite strongly to this yesterday, Harry, which is a suggestion that the thing has become apart from the political parties, and after all, there is only one political party in in in, in this race. A sort of a plaything of 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 rich men. Uh, now Gavin Duffy said that uh, described him himself, and I think the other implicitly the other Dragon's Den uh, contestants as uh, as coming from the real world. Um, the implication being that Joan Freeman and Michael D. Higgins and Lady Rita don't, I suppose. But there is, a, there is an issue that somebody who has the money and the ego um, to to put themselves forward is able to do Not so necessarily in, in that order. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, yeah. The, um, Should we be concerned about that? A, a little, but um, if... Uh, if the state were to finance every independent candidate that, 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 that w- which would make it through, uh, you'd have lots of candidates and lots of uh, a, a big bill to the to the uh, exchequer. The, the difficulty, as far as I can see it, is to do with independent candidates. I mean, if you if you're backed by a party, you, you get the, the backing of the party, um, uh, and you get access to its funds. Uh, if you want to stand as an independent candidate, uh, they reckon that if you want to make a serious bid for the presidency. Uh, the amount of uh, funding you will require will be in the order of so, so 250 is, to so, 300,000 euros. So the point is valid. The point that Pat is making that the political parties aren't interested for, 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 for good reason in, in the contest at the moment leaves the field open to 
people who, who, who frankly don't come from the real world, people who think it's hilarious to run videos of hidden golf balls into the, into the already polluted Atlantic, people who, you know, people who, do, who, do not, who are not a cross-section of Irish society, let's say, in any, in any believable way. Well, I mean, the three dragon's dens would not be representative of the, the PPI, if you want to put it like that. Of course, they're, they're, oh, uh, they're, they, they come from the business world. All of them are independently wealthy and have access to their own resources. So in that way, the point that Joan Freeman is making is a valid one, that, that the process is... Jo- is Joan Freeman is, is in the race, though. She's in the race because she persuaded... A, a rich another man another dra- campaign another dragon's den type guy to 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 uh, to to fund her campaign. I mean, and there's a certain it. amount of you know, so what uh, about this? The people who go for election either need to raise money to demonstrate the capacity to raise money themselves, or they fund it, uh, uh, you know, fund it from their own resources. I don't think there's anything especially on. So you don't you don't have that. any concern that that the, that the field which is being presented to the Irish electorate this time around. Uh, is not perhaps that uh, as good a field in terms of a range of choices as, as one might, might hope for. Well, it's a perfect range of choices of the people who manage to go through the nomination process and persuade councillors, for mm. better or worse, to nominate them. And the councillors, uh, you know, whatever we say about them, they performed a, uh, they, they, they narrowed down the field. It was a sort of presidential primary. So there were uh, several other candidates uh, who... Uh, who sought nominations, the councillors saw fit uh, to deny them uh, nominations. And that's the process that that's the process that we have. You could argue perhaps it's too easy to get a nomination uh, to, to get into the uh, to get onto the ballot paper. Uh, uh, maybe other people would argue that it's that it's too hard. But yeah, at, at funding, I mean, you do need a certain amount of funding, but it's not as onerous um, a challenge as it was in the past. For example, I think three of the candidates have already publicly said that they're not going to do any postering. And postering is always the biggest uh, individual item uh, in any uh, election campaign uh, budget. Uh, with the uh, availability of social media, they—I mean, look, look at look at Trump's resources compared to Hillary Clinton's in 2016. I mean, she had ten times the spending resources of him, and he was—he was even though he he was very well resourced, of course he was, but he was able to use sure. alternative there are, there are, means. There are, there are different there are different way, ways to work to do it. I mean, I think think the, the difficulty that a, a candidate without much means has is if they come into the race quite late, they'll have to raise money very quickly. Um, I think if a person was thinking perhaps two years out from election that they were going to make a bid, they could look at alternative sources of funding like kind of crowdsourcing and, and whatever, or crowdfunding, GoFundMe and that type of thing. Or people, people could use the existing political parties mm. as vehicles for their, uh, their campaigns. We, we, we can't a lot, lot of the political parties say that they don't want to spend any money. Well, clearly that's the case. We, we, we don't have time to go through one by one all six Kansas sale. We will do, in, in, uh, I'm afraid, over the, next, over the next few weeks. But um, I wanted to raise a point about... I think uh, an interview that, that you undertook with Sean Gallagher came up on RTE with Sean O'Rourke uh, and we want to set the record straight as well as listening to this little clip. You talk about the taxi drivers and their wisdom and I noted in, I think it was a piece that Pat Leahy wrote, it might have been somebody else in the Irish Times, um, that uh, what, they're, what, the, what his taxi drivers are asking him when your name comes up is, where's he been for the last seven years? And very active and busy, I would say, in response to, to, to Pat. I've spent the last seven years, as I was saying, in a mix of business and not-for-profit. So at the last election, I laid out a platform which was relevant to the time when there was high unemployment and high immigration. Whole swathes of Ireland were being left depopulated of, of young people. 
And and I set out in a campaign to do for jobs what Mary McAleese had done for the peace process. And after the election, I had to obviously do what everybody else does. I had to provide for my family. So I set up a new business, which was providing office and industrial workspace. And indeed it was somebody else, Harry, because it was you who conducted that interview and not Pat. I'm so crestfallen and so heartbroken. It reminds me of a famous... uh, quote from Con Houlihan in relation to a former colleague, uh, forgotten but not gone. And um, Sean actually rang me afterwards to apologise. Oh, fair enough, yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so the correct the question, of course, the, the writing uh, was of such quality that maybe it almost equaled that of Pat. So I might have thought it was uh, a Pat Leahy piece. But I, I never get taxis, of course. Harry gets them all the time, but I normally cycle around. Uh, so, which is why Sean... Anyway, any, anyway, gentlemen, there is, I mean, there is that point and... It, it, in some ways, it says sympathetic to him. He, he took a, you know, he put his best foot forward at the, in the twenty eleven election. He almost succeeded. It was kind of beyond most people's expectations in terms of his performance. At, at you know, at at the outset, and then he had to, you know, go back to work and you know, uh, feed his family and do all that. But there is a question that um, you you run for the highest office in the land, um, albeit largely ceremonial, and then you just disappear out of civic space I suppose for seven years and then you just pop up again. Yeah and I think it's valid uh, criticism. He did I mean he disappeared completely off the radar after the 2011 election. I know that he pursued this uh, case uh, with RTE that took six years and he tried to build up his business interests but when you start looking for a public service element to the last seven years uh, it's it's kind of more or less absent and I think that's something that he will have to try to explain during the course of the campaign. If he was serious about Becoming president, he wants to be president for all the people. You can't do a campaign in 2011 and then disappear and then come back and say the same thing six years later without having any uh, kind of public um, element um, uh, in the intervening seven years. And I think other people like Gavin Duffy and Peter Cates will be vulnerable to this uh, as well. Uh, Gavin Duffy uh, yesterday was asked about his public service and he said he wasn't going to kind of start talking about every charity he supported or every event. And then he said that he uh, he's done lots of events uh, and, uh, and he hasn't invoiced them all. So he has obviously done stuff for free in the past. But I mean, that is something people will say. Well, I mean, you know, if you want to be president, there has to be a public service part to your makeup. And uh, so far, that hasn't really is, been clearly evident. Is, in either is Sean there Gallagher a risk for these Duffy. three guys that they will sort of blend into each other? You know, there's the Dragon's Den joke, obviously, and that's you know, it's, it's, you know, they, they they do all come from the same background. Yeah, and you know, you could confuse them. And then if you add to that Sean Gallagher, who seems to be, we'll wait for more polls, but seems to be the leader amongst the Dragon's Den uh, cohort, that he might be dragged back into the pack by that. Plus, there's a touch of secondhand goods about him this time around. I. Be careful about that analysis. I think he has an advantage, a uh, significant advantage over uh, the two, uh, the two other dragons, and that is that he has uh, an identification with Fianna Fáil. And if you talk to many uh, TDs, they regard him as practically the unofficial Fianna Fáil candidate. And whereas that was kind of a subterranean element in his campaign the last time, I think it'll be much less so this time. And that gives him a significant head start in a crowded field. That gives him a significant head start, I think. Mike Lee Higgins so far, even though I think in, in, in the media the perception was that he got an easy ride the last time around, 
Is he going to get a tougher ride or is he already getting a tougher ride this time? I think so. Look, I think two things to be said. First of all, he's the overwhelming favourite and by far the most likely outcome of the election at this stage is that Michael D wins it and wins it easily. But campaigns change things. And I think there is a perception amongst the media grounded in reality that Michael D Higgins got a much easier ride from the media in the 2011 campaign than several of the other candidates uh, will. And I don't think that will be the case this time. And I think you're already seeing elements of that. If you look at the Sunday papers last week, were uh, were full of questions about uh, this 317,000 allowance that came out at the PAC, itself part of that same process uh, last week. Michael D was has been confronted by questions uh, about this. He said, you know, that he would publish details of it after the election. I think he'd be asked questions about this, about the organisation in the ORUS, about the spending in the ORUS every time he sticks his head up. And he might not, uh, he might not like that. But I think that is, uh, that is what will happen. And I think it will be a central dynamic in the way that Michael D is interrogated for and, the... And let's have a listen to something he had to say on that subject a couple of days ago in RTE. But if you didn't want to serve a cup of tea to those elderly citizens, if you didn't want to receive the Magdalene victims, if you didn't want to receive those, for example, who are associated with the Irish language movement, all the different voluntary bodies that Sabina and I have run garden parties for, you could stop it by a vote in the Iraq by saying you want the president to be out there receiving nobody, doing nothing, but occasionally signing a paper that you wanted him him or her to sign. All right. So, Harry, there's Michael D going, don't hit me with the Magdalene survivors in my arms here, which is a kind of a fairly standard defence. But he's, you know, you were talking, you were uh, following him yesterday and he was responding to what Pat described as, you know, some criticisms in the Sunday newspapers. Yeah, and as Pat was saying, um, there there is a real sense amongst the media that he probably got the softest ride um, seven years ago in terms of the candidates. In fact, the the joke was that he was the eldest candidate then and he had dodgy knees, uh, but he was the only one who was left standing after that bruising uh, campaign uh, battle. And uh, there was a sense that he wasn't really interrogated in the way that other candidates were. And you can see that the situation has markedly changed this time, that every time he has done a public interview, and yesterday was the second one after his launch last week, uh, he has been dogged by questions. About how, does he, how is he reacting to that? He's reacted to it, it with a mixture of um, uh, of being sanguine and also of being outraged. There was a uh, an article in one of the Sunday newspapers that suggested that some of the €317,000 was used uh, to top up the salary of a special advisor. And he said that was, uh, yesterday he said that was outrageous and that was uh, slanderous uh, and very hurtful to the particular uh, special uh, advisor uh, he, he had. And he said that... they. Why, la- would, that, why would that be hurtful? Well, because it, it, because it was being suggested that the, the, the special advisor was getting a kind of an ex-gracia uh, top-up and also that the, the, the fund itself was being used for purposes uh, for which it was not intended. And they were the two issues that he had. But the difficulty is that he hasn't uh, fully outlined how the money is spent. And until he does questions like that and kind of allegations like that uh, will follow him around. So do you think he'd be forced to do so? Well, he said he'll do so in November after the election, but I think there'll be considerable pressure brought to bear uh, for him to do it uh, in advance. He also said uh, that uh, in 2011, Mary McAleese handed back €477,000 
uh, from her 14 years because she got the same allowance of €317,000 every year. And he said that he would be handing back a balance as well. And he said he was going to do it at the end of his term, which might be 14 years, uh, but he's going to do it now at the end of a seven-year term. So it'll be interesting to see how much he has actually uh, handed back. One other question that arises in relation to Michael D is because he is the first sitting president to actively campaign, you know, questions have been raised about the delineation between his, you know, his his usual presidential duties, which tend to involve a lot of the kissing babies kind of routine, which is not hugely different from what's involved in a presidential campaign and actually campaigning. And there are, are there any rules really about this? Um, well, no, because... It's been unprecedented that um, uh, for a a sitting president uh, to take part in an election campaign, De Valera was the sitting president in 65, but he he essentially didn't campaign. He continued to do his presidential duties, uh, but he didn't take part in any uh, debates. So uh, what happened was that the president sat down with the secretary general of his office, Arthur Leary, back in July, uh, knowing that he would be standing again. And they decided what presidential um, uh, events he would attend or what presidential obligations uh, he might have to fulfil. And to, and to be to uh, looking at it, they, they actually um, set out a fairly full uh, schedule. He's a lot of, of official uh, events on. So the first question is, could he have cut down on those a little? Uh, because essentially, when his opponents look at the president, they see a man who is running with the hare and chasing with the hound because, um, you know, he, uh, for example, the Liam Miller uh, testimonial last week, the president attended that, and that was, you know, very soft publicity sure. uh, in front of of a crowd of forty thousand people. He opened the ball in a slow horse fair. He was up on a stage. He didn't take questions for for uh, reporter from reporters, while the other candidates who attended did have to take questions uh, from uh, reporters. So this kind of almost artificial uh, uh, divide or artifice uh, that divides him from the uh, other uh, candidates. And it it does. There are no rules, and I'm not not sure. I mean, do you think that that will in any way militate, mitigate against people's perception of him and how he's conducting his campaign? I, I'm not sure if it will uh, or not. He he did a he did a walk down Grafton Street yesterday, and he was mobbed. You know, he was mobbed by mostly by teenagers and school children, uh, but he was mobbed, and you won't non voters, in other words. Yes, lot of non voters looking for selfies. He's not allowed to do selfies. What happens is that the guard is with him. Uh, will take the camera and take a po- photograph of both of them. You're not you're not allowed to. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a constitutional provision for this, but you're not allowed to lean into the president for a selfie. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it it is it is a slight artifice, and his candidates will look at it and say it's an advantage to him because he gets lots of public exposure and lots of soft uh, um, uh, publicity uh, without the kind of interrogation that they are facing. But at the same time, he does have to fulfil his constitutional role as president. And that also means meeting the peop- people, speaking and going to uh, particular events. And, and yesterday he confirmed to you that uh, he will take part certainly in three debates, one on RT Radio and one on Virgin Media and one on RT Primetime. Yes, so the first one will be Saturday with Cormac O'Hara on the 13th of October. Uh, the next one will be the following Wednesday with Pat Kenny on Virgin Media 1. And then the final one will be on the 23rd of October, which is the Tuesday uh, before the Friday, which is the polling day. And that will be the primetime debate, which I suppose will be this year's uh, equivalent of the famous frontline debate. They'll be a bit more careful about the Twitter machine this time out. I think they'll be very much and about the questions and about the audience election. 
I think it will be, I I don't think it will be a subject of controversy afterwards. Well, Harry, good luck with your presidential duties over the next few weeks. I have to say you have my sympathy, but I'm sure you'll make the most of it. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to Harry and Pat and also to Lisa O'Carroll, who joined us earlier. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 